This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere tonight at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A warning before I begin. This is a story that includes sexual violence. It is not suitable for children to hear. If you have suffered trauma, please listen with care. It was just such a brutal case. Just so brutal. The impact of it, you know, and it was just something you just couldn't comprehend. Somebody being that vicious, you know, that evil. That's Dolores. She was a Summit County, Ohio sheriff's deputy back in 84. She's seen a lot of bad stuff go down. Yet what happened to Phyllis is fresh in her mind, even though it happened more than 30 years ago. I was 22 at the time. Like I said, I had just snagged my first professional job. I thought I knew what I was doing, but I really didn't. What university prepares you to cover something so ungodly? So I learned on the job that yeah, there's evil in the world. And I'll be honest, it freaked me out. I wasn't exactly naive, but I believed the good guys eventually won out and that there were angels in the world who would at the very least come to my aid if I ran into the devil. But real life is not like that, not always, especially in the 80s. Like many young professional women, my ambitions were often at odds with the rules of a man's world. But more than that, it was a world that could also be incredibly violent. For all the nostalgia of high-waisted jeans, leather jackets, and bike shorts set to the sounds of synth pop, there was a darker side to the decade. Sexual assaults were insanely common all around the country, as with the victim-blaming that went along with them. It was legal in 1984 for a husband to rape his wife. And the concept of date rape hadn't yet found its way into the American consciousness. So maybe you can understand why I was not exactly objective when it came to covering Phyllis's story. I'm not sure anyone was. I mean, how could you be? She did try to make a scene, and nobody, it, nobody, listened. nobody listened. Everybody thought it was a domestic dispute. And so she just was like, okay, that's not going to work. I think people want, like, a, you know, a knight in shining armor. And in that reality, there's not a knight in shining armor. I'm Carol Costello, former CNN anchor and national correspondent. This is Blind Rage, Episode 1, That Day. There was something special about Phyllis Cottle. It's hard to put into words, but I'll try. 
Phyllis Cottle saw the world in vivid color, even when she was in the most mundane of places like the bowling alley. She loved to bowl, delighted in watching the colorful balls, blue, red, and green, spin their way down the alley. She liked the strategic way they crashed into the white pins, picking them up and sending them into the darkness. I sat down with Phyllis in 2004. We talked about her case, and I remember how she emphasized a lot of things, but especially this. Everything she did was visual. Everything. This isn't the greatest recording, it's an old audio tape, and I wish I'd kept a longer version of the interview, but I thought you should hear part of Phyllis's story in her own voice. Everything I did was visual. Even bowling, I mean, it was a visual thing for me. Because I'd throw that ball down there and watch how those pins would go and say, okay, well, next time I get, mm, you know, everything was visual. Phyllis's daughter, Diane, said her mom took pictures of everything. She saw beauty everywhere. Phyllis could name every plant, every flower, every tree. Her recall was astonishing. I think she's got that photographic memory. I mean, she could just remember things just through life that were just insignificant to other people. Phyllis's eye for detail was her superpower, and her daughters loved her for that and for so many other things. She was a great single mom. You know, she struggled with not having any input from my dad but she did really well on making sure that we were able to do some things like camping. She got us out into the woods, uh, hiking, you know, things that you would normally be able to do kind of on the cheap, as she called it. Diane's tween friends loved Phyllis too. She reminded them of the most popular mom in 70s pop culture, Mrs. Cunningham from the iconic TV show, Happy Days. They, they were like, you know, she's so cool. Mrs. C was what they called the mom. And they, they said, well, can we call you Mrs. C? Sure, go for it. So she was, I guess, fun-loving would be another, another way to say it. On a balmy day in March of 1984, the kind of day that Northeast Ohioans long for after the bitter cold of winter, Phyllis looked every inch like the cool mom. Oversized sunglasses, purple coat, burgundy boots. Bold colors for a bold woman who was warm and funny, but tough too. She's kind of like a, like a, no offense, please don't take it, like a pit bull. Because pit bulls, they're so soft and so cuddly. And you know, I mean, they're so sweet, but you know what? When you piss them off, they will show teeth. At 8.20 on a Tuesday morning, Phyllis drove to work like she always did. She pulled her decked-out Buick LeSabre into her normal parking spot, across the street from a business park on Akron's busy West Exchange Street. And when I say busy West Exchange, I mean busy. There were gas stations, antique stores, and apartments on this part of West Exchange. Emily Palfrey, a former Ohio prosecutor and my legal guide for this podcast, spent part of her childhood in Akron. She remembers that part of West Exchange clear as day. It was safe, but like a lot of neighborhoods in Akron, walk a few blocks and things turn dicey. You know, when I lived in Akron in the early 80s, we went to a Catholic school and we were allowed to walk those three blocks to Catholic school, but we weren't allowed to go down one street past where we lived or over one or two streets. Because your parents would say it's too dangerous. It was a very strange atmosphere in that there really just was this delineation of where 
you knew you could be and where you couldn't be. And it was just a very divided city. Akron, Ohio is a mid-sized city in the industrial Midwest. It was mired in a deep recession in 1984. Manufacturers had moved their factories down south in search of cheap labor. The unemployment rate was insane, 12%. Crime was a problem, not just in Akron, but across the country. Politicians ran with that. President Ronald Reagan blamed human predators, career criminals whose psyches were not affected by poverty or abuse, but who were born evil, who committed crime because they could get away with it. Thank you very much. Just during the time that you and I are together today, at least one person will be murdered, nine women will be raped, 67 other Americans will be robbed, 97 will be seriously assaulted, and 389 homes will be burglarized. This will all happen in the span of the next 30 minutes or while I'm talking. Reagan spoke those words to an audience full of international law enforcement officers. He went on to say, I commend you for manning the thin blue line that holds back a jungle which threatens to reclaim this clearing we call civilization. And by jungle, well, you know who Reagan meant. None of that was on Phyllis's radar as she got out of her car and headed into Murphy's siding across West Exchange Street. As the much-appreciated, much-admired, much-loved office manager and bookkeeper, she had a tough day ahead. Her car, that Buick LeSabre, had been a gift from her boss for a job well done. He couldn't afford to pay her more, so he gave her a car so she could get to where she needed to go safely. The Buick was a distinctive metallic tannish brown with a black vinyl top and black interior. It was decked out on the inside, too, with a good stereo system, electric locks, and tinted windows. These were not standard features in 1984. They were luxuries on a car back then. Phyllis loved that car. It was her pride and joy. She had to be out of the office by 11.30 that Tuesday because Murphy sponsored two booths at a flower show at the mall. That tight time frame made her anxious. Other things, personal things, weighed on her too. She was 44 years old, a woman who had endured an abusive relationship so painful she refused to talk about it. A divorced single mom who survived with little financial help from her ex. Things were better now. Two of her daughters had moved out of the house to start lives of their own. Still, and these are her words, she didn't have a damn thing to show for all those years of working. Phyllis yearned to change her life. It was time to move on from dead-end jobs, from years of hard work, from a lot of things. Five years before, Phyllis's mother drove to a bus station and disappeared. The family had done everything to find her, even hired a private detective, but Nothing. It was as if Phyllis's mother had simply vanished from the face of the earth. Her dad had finally given up. He had Phyllis's mom declared legally dead. It had been a painful decision for Phyllis, and it still was. She glanced at her watch. It was almost noon. She still had to close down the shop and pop over to a friend's nearby apartment to remind him the bowling match was still on because in 1984, there were no cell phones. She couldn't call him from her car on the way to the mall. She was just about to run across the street to her car to take off for the mall when she remembered she needed to gas up her car. She turned back to Murphy's, unlocked the door to get the company credit card. A young black man on foot 
with a hat pulled down over his eyebrows, noticed all of this. He looked out of place with his hat pulled low at his too warm clothes, but he looked comfortable too, like he'd been there before. Did he have some plan to abduct some, a woman and, and rape her? I don't know. Maybe, maybe that's what he wanted to do. Um, it seems like that day, he was, that was his mindset. Bob Bulford worked in the Summit County Prosecutor's Office in 1984. You think initially he had his eye on another woman, not Phyllis? Yeah, I do. I do. At the time, Bulford believed this man had his eye on a young woman he'd spotted near Murphy's a few days before. But when she walked out of the antique store near Murphy's, the suspect changed his mind. The woman had her children with her. That would make things way too complicated. So he needed a new mark, a new victim. He turned his attention to a woman in burgundy boots who carried a purple coat. It was 11.50 a.m., when a young man approached Phyllis. She had just locked the office door. He asked if the place was closed for the day. The man was polite, but something about him was off, like his heavy clothing. He must be sweating, Phyllis thought. Her eye for detail kicked in subconsciously. Being a visual person, when I saw things, a lot of times they registered in my head. And I remember him wearing, like, oh, maybe a tan or khaki kind of... Uh, flaps and jacket. He was carrying something that didn't register later. You know, it was a duffel bag where he had all these little stuff in. And he's wearing a knitted cap. And the thing, the thing that I didn't realize it at the time, but when I thought about it, I thought it was strange because he was either bald or had very little hair because that cap fit kind of tight around his head. And his eyes. She noticed his eyes. They were large and dark. Phyllis watched as he walked away, then finished locking up. She slung her heavy coat over her arm, keys in hand. At noon, Phyllis crossed West Exchange Street to her car. She unlocked the Buick, heaved her purple coat inside, and as she turned around, something heavy, solid, hit her hard in the head. She realized in an instant it was a gym bag, not the nylon flimsy kind, but the kind with a hard bottom that hurt. Phyllis fought, but the man who wielded the gym bag was strong. His body felt like a brick wall. He punched her in the face repeatedly. She stabbed him with her keys, and then she screamed. The man tried to push her into the car. She laid on the horn. Phyllis did all the right things. She fought, screamed, beat the horn. It was broad daylight in the middle of a city on busy West Exchange Street. There was a gas station, a beauty school, a pawn shop, and apartments nearby. Someone should have heard her, seen her, helped her. And she was right. Someone did see her. A man, on foot, on his way home from the grocery store. He saw it all. Samantha is Phyllis's granddaughter. If I see a woman yelling for help, you know, being pushed and abused by a man, I'm going to step in and be like, Back off, you know, try to get her out of the situation. But that man, an ex-con named Terry, walked by. Just walked by. When he describes what he saw, it's clear that it wasn't just some little spat between a boyfriend and girlfriend or something. It, it, was, it was more serious than that, you know. And he saw it. 
he heard a scream, help me, help me. Then he walks a little further and he, and he hears it again. I just don't know how you don't go do something. But Terry did nothing. Maybe he would have done something had cell phones that could take pictures been invented in 1984. Maybe he would have flung his groceries at the attacker if he hadn't been an ex-con who harbored a deep distrust of police. Maybe. But on that day, in this man's mind, the whole thing just looked like a domestic. Just some guy beating up on his old lady. It wasn't worth running to a payphone to call police. He was an ex-con. They wouldn't give him the time of day anyway. I think people want, like, a you know, a knight in shining armor. And in that reality, there's not a knight in shining armor. It's you and yourself. You and yourself and a monster. Now that would be a nightmare. But a nightmare would mean that Phyllis would eventually wake up from this horrific encounter. But this was no dream for her. It was real. What happened on that day changed real lives forever. The events that are about to be described are real and true. The victim, Phyllis Cottle, describes the attack that occurred on March 20th, 1984. Throughout this series, you'll hear excerpts from transcripts and court proceedings. The voice you just heard is our voice of the court, and whenever you hear it, I want you to imagine Phyllis bravely describing the events that nearly took her life in minute, horrifying detail. She was threatened by her attacker, who told her to stop fighting back. He then threatened to kill her. When Phyllis felt something cold, hard, and sharp at her neck, she knew no one would ride to her rescue. There was a knife at her throat. And this man, with the knit hat, the too heavy coat, and the heavy gym bag, made it clear what would happen if she continued to fight. She was like, I realized very quickly that I was not going to overpower him. There was no option of that. Where most people would fight and try to run and whatever else, she realized she did try to make a scene. And nobody nobody listened. Everybody thought it was a domestic dispute. And so she just was like, okay, that's not going to work. It was just Phyllis and a monster with a serrated knife. During the attack... Miss Cottle noticed a witness walking along the road before being forced into her car and thrown to the floorboard, all while being taunted mercilessly. Her body was positioned in a pretzel with her face down. She recalls a jacket being put over her head and could no longer see anything but his legs at this point. She was asked if she was aware that she would be raped by her assailant. He drove the car away, abducting the victim. And Phyllis? terrified, her eyes covered with her coat, could not see where he was taking her. Next week, terror. When I was being attacked, I was in the driver's seat of my car, and the man had a knife, and he had me around the throat, and I felt like I was actually like in the air, looking down at something happening to somebody else. Carol Costello presents Blind Rage as a signature show of the Killer Podcast Network and can be found on all listening apps. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at killerpodcast.com. Blind Rage is a co-production of Evergreen Podcasts and Carol Costello. This episode was produced by Nigel Galladay and me, Carol Costello. Additional thanks to audio engineer Sean Rule Hoffman, contributor Chris Iola, production director Bridget Coyne, and executive producer Gerardo Orlando. 
All of the information in this podcast came from my memories of the event. Phyllis Cottle, her family members and friends, former law enforcement, prosecutors, former and current journalists, police reports, and court documents. I've tried to tell this story factually to the best of my ability, but sometimes memory fails. It's been a long time, but my goal is simple. Phyllis was an amazing woman, and her story of courage should be shared. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Do you enjoy science, spooky stories, and all things paranormal? We do too. While we would love for most paranormal stories to be true, we are here to tell you that they probably aren't. But that doesn't make them any less fun to speculate about. We are the Spooky Science Sisters podcast. In this podcast, we bring you bi-weekly discussions on possible scientific explanations behind the supernatural. Backed up by research articles and other credible sources, we do deep dives into things like archaeology and physics and share in-depth discussions with topic experts. Visit us at SpookySciencesisters.com to listen to a couple of skeptics debunk some of your favorite alien encounters, cryptid sightings, and ghost stories with science, sass, and a significant amount of laughter. Thank you and stay spooky.